everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black History and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 67 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and as always I'll be your host today. In today's episode we will be thinking about the Brixton Black Women's Group. It is or it might be if you're listening when it came out, um, International Women's Month um, and International Women's Day should be following shortly. Um, and I wanted to think about some of the organisations that black women were involved in in Britain um, in the 60s, 70s, 80s and so on over the next few weeks um, and also look at some influential black women because, as we know, oftentimes when we think about black history, women are erased from that narrative um, and their work is often kind of diminished um, a little bit. So we will be shedding light on black women. Um, I'm happy to be back in this field of research. Um, It's what I think I've probably done the most research on uh, academically. So it's nice to be sharing some of that information with you on the podcast this week. At this point, I would just like to disclose a trigger warning um, and, you know, suggest that There will be conversations in this episode regarding sexual violence uh, towards women, children and also uh, police violence against black people. Um, So if this isn't the episode for you this week, then I completely understand. um, And there are some more lighter episodes. Um, We won't be going into detail with any of these things, but just to illustrate some of the work that the Brixton Black Women's Group did, uh, conversations about these topics will be necessary. The Brixton Black Women's Group was an organisation Um, primarily started by black women in Brixton um, and it was one of the first black women's group in the UK. It followed on from OAD which was a group that um, we've spoken about before on this podcast actually, the organisation of women of Asian and African descent Um, and it was a socialist feminist group, um, the Brixton black women's group coming out of OAD and aimed to raise consciousness and also organise around social issues, um, political issues, legal issues um, that would affect black women, but not just black women. And I really want to highlight that, Um, you know, they weren't an exclusionary group. They didn't, you know, ban you if you weren't black from accessing their services or help. Um, It was for everyone, but it was primarily run by black women. And of course, the title um, of the group was the Brixton Black Women's Group. Um, Obviously, as well, black meaning um, women from non-white backgrounds essentially so Asian women might have been included in black um, mixed race women black women from Africa from the Caribbean um, and wider parts of the world so just to set the scene a little bit um, and you know of course as we know um, in the 60s from the 50s and the 40s as well um, there was a lot of racism um, in Britain that was meted out to black people and black communities Um, and in the 60s in particular there were a lot of police raids with or without warrants, thinking about the Mangrove Nine um, and that situation, episode one and two. If you haven't listened to episode one and two, I would definitely go back. I think they were some of my favourite episodes to research, maybe because the podcast didn't really exist yet and I just thought, oh, the possibilities are endless here. Um, but anyway, that talks a little bit about what the police were doing in the 60s um, to black businesses. Um, there was a lot of intimidation, violence, harassment on the streets, trashing of people's houses, searches, assaults, um, uh, like violence in police custody. It was all very common. Um, but black people were told that if they didn't want to get, you know, into confrontations with the police, they didn't want to get arrested, they didn't want to face, um, you know, being searched, that they should just stay indoors. 
And that's very funny because it's exactly what people say to women when women bring up the threat of violence, um, sexual violence or otherwise. Um, you know, just, oh, well, don't go out so late and, you know, stay on well-lit roads and don't wear this, don't wear that. Anyway, similar things are said to black people, just stay indoors, you know, then you won't be in confrontation with the police. Well, can't really stay indoors if you want to go to work and school and, you know, live your life. So that wasn't going to work. The widespread use of um, Section 24 of the 1824 Vagrancy Act, um, which was kind of renamed Sus Laws um, in its, like, I guess, street phrase, um, that black peoples were facing, um, sus laws were a big problem. Um, the charge was loitering with intent to commit a crime. So it meant, you know, if you were just about maybe talking to your friends on the street in a group, I think larger than two, I think the numbers are ridiculous. So if you literally just with your friend talking, maybe outside your house or down the road, um, and police thought that you were suspect or they just really, they didn't really have to suspect you were a suspect, they just really were you know trying to hunt down black people um and terrorize them a little bit and that's not me just saying that you know there are reports um and like actual (laughs) factual research um of policies of the police and conversations that they've had where they were essentially just you know hunting um n-word hunting as it was called um so yes sus laws disproportionately impacted um young black people young black men especially um however it was black women um that were very vocal and active in this kind of movement against it and i think that was probably because they had sons and husbands and partners and boyfriends um that would have been disproportionately affected and you know they were standing up against that so it was kind of first the black panther movement um which there is an episode on um, who kind of were part of this, the Fasimbas, who were another group, um, and had very strong um, black leaders, black women leaders within that group um, that were kind of fighting this. There was also the Universal Coloured People's Association, which had established the Black Women's Liberation Movement um, a little bit earlier on. Um, and so, you know, women were active in political consciousness and activism in regards to black issues and I say black as in not necessarily gendered Um, however there was coming a point where women would have to break out of some of those groups that were you know mixed let's say in order to discuss um, female women issues Um, and sometimes that they the problem would be black men (laughs) so organizing in the same space as black men would be difficult and sometimes they would actually take physical space away from them to discuss these issues within the bigger movements like the panther movement and the fasimbas for example however by the 70s a lot of black women begin to form their own organizations because they realize they kind of can't function underneath these bigger movements for black liberation because they are oppressive in some ways because black men are also oppressors of black women in other aspects of life maybe not in racism well of course not in racism um but obviously sexism is very much a thing domestic violence is a thing sexual abuse is a thing um and these are some of the things that they would come together to speak about think about and to solve so oad organization of women of african and asian descent um was founded and then outside of oad smaller groups kind of broke out and founded themselves um, and the Brixton Black Women's Group was one of them. 
Now, it's important to understand, I think, as well, because OAD was a really big group and there's an episode on it and I would really implore you to listen. Um, I think I did it last International Women's Month. Yes, indeed, it was um, 8th of March 2021 um, and it's episode 25. Um, if you do want to go back and have a listen to that, it discusses OAD's roots, aims, achievements and legacy and also um, the book that was born out of the movement, The Heart of the Race, um, which was published in 1985. So now we're going to think about why the Brixton Black Women's Group started, um, what its aims were and what it actually did um, as an organisation. We obviously can't talk about everything and we would be here all day, um, but we will pick out um, some of the things and I will be using um, testimonies from some of the members of the Brixton Black Women's uh, Group um, in print form, which I'll read out, and also in audio form. Let's pray we don't get taken down for copyright, as usual. Anyway, um, so our first um, kind of testimony, shall we say, is from a lady called Marlene Bogle, who was a centre coordinator at the Brixton Black Women's Centre um, in 1987. Um, and this article was written um, as it was a paper originally written for a conference in 87 and then it was turned into an article and published in 1988 um, for the Feminist Review, which is an academic journal. Um, and I won't quote her, I will kind of paraphrase the article because it very cleanly and neatly explains um, some of the reasons why it started and some of the work that they did. Um, and then we will think about... Um, consciousness raising and being politically aware and conscious um which was another aspect um of the group that they sought out to do um, and we'll think about some of the members and what they had to say about that so marlene um bogle goes on to write um and this is not a quote um you know, in the same way that they had to fight imperialism as black people um and its tenets racism um, as women, they had to fight against sexism and chauvinism, which was part of the oppression of black women. Um, they realised that very quickly, um, and it's quite common with a lot of black women's groups that were founded at this time, they had to raise their own level of consciousness and fight on the grounds of black being black women, not just being black um, or not just being women. Um, however, a lot of these groups, this one included, did not come out of not being able to find a space within white feminism it was more they weren't able to find a space within um black liberation movements a bit more widely um and then started to organize as black women separately um they struggled to afford a place um as a home or a base so for the first two years um, of the group's kind of beginning they met in each other's homes Front rooms were common meeting places um, for so many different groups, events, communities um, within black communities at this time. So this is quite typical because, you know, getting your hands on physical space, if you're of a working class background, financially, that wouldn't be very possible. Um, and also, you know, people were struggling to rent properties to live in, let alone to have a meeting about you know, whether it be black liberation, black consciousness, fighting up and rising up against the police, people would not want to lend you their space for that at all. Um, so a lot of the meetings and discussions that were to happen happened in people's rooms in their homes um, in the early days. Um, some of the early issues that were raised were how to support um, single mothers um, and provide them with actual tangible support because they were often isolated in their homes and unable to work with young children. Um, 
I can imagine that would be very isolating if it's just you and one, two, three or more young children um, and you're unable to work because obviously you have to care for them. Um, Childcare was not widely available um, in this period because women, women weren't really expected to go to work. However, women needed to go to work because they're working class and they didn't have um you know enough money and if you're a single mother you obviously wouldn't have enough money with no other wage coming in um and so they created this space to support women regardless of their race no women were isolated from accessing the services that the Brixton Black Women's Group provided um and it helped a lot of new young moms because they were able to get the support they needed and a lot of them actually returned to college in this time and some of them into part-time work so that they were able to develop their skills while their children were cared for by the group. Um, You know, I I believe there were several women that would have been there that would have needed childcare and rotor systems and, you know, some of the organisers would have just looked after their children um, and they developed a creche and things like that. So that support would be there, which is the kind of support that black women needed more so than just black men more widely. Um, you can see that the issues are very different that they were thinking about at this point. Um, when it came to conscious raising, um, and conscious raising is a term that's come from my research, and it just means that conscious raising groups allow women to discuss feelings, needs, desires. Um, these feelings include things that might be perceived as taboo or private or shameful, um, especially in the 60s where the sexual revolution Um, was kind of happening at that time and conversations about women's bodies and what they have the right to do and not to do um, were going on contraception was becoming more widely available Um, and so women could speak about things that related to sex abortion family relationships um, sexual relationships often for the first time Um, and so in a conscious raising group they would be thinking about these kinds of things um, in this context anyway and so In the beginning um, of the Brixton Black Women's Group, a lot of the um, projects were short term because they had no permanent base and couldn't really commit to long term projects. So it became one of their first priorities to find a permanent base within the community, have regular meetups and provide facilities, as we said, for women and children. So they appointed two workers um, to apply for funding. Um, in July 1979 and it took a long time but by September 1980 the Black Women's Centre was officially open and they were able then to have a creche um, you know that could obviously be run by people and that was a physical space outside of a home they were able to develop areas such as craft workshops um, they had a library um, and a space that specialised in women's literature and black history. They ran information and advice services on matters such as healthcare and legal and welfare rights for women. They also were able to um, have political awareness and political consciousness, um, conversations through seminar discussions, regular meetings, uh, like film study um, and study groups more widely. So they were really working on, you know, not only some of the tangible needs of women that were struggling, but also raising the political consciousness of other women through education um, in a variety of forms. Um, They also worked to support black women and children that had survived sexual abuse. Um, Sexual abuse was often seen as a white problem um, and cultural stereotypes about black people often 
block them from accessing support for sexual assault and abuse um, in the mainstream. Um, and so the Brixton Black Women's Group saw this as a problem and started to work on sexual violence. And Marlene Bogle was one of those people that did that. And that's why she was presenting this paper that I'm taking my information from um, about supporting survivors of sexual abuse um, at the conference that she presented it to in the 70s. Um, and, you know, that work was about supporting black women and also children that had experienced that. Um, and... This was because, and I didn't know this, but this is what I read, um, that one of the stereotypes um, or cultural stereotypes that were kind of made out onto black people was that, like, incest was just a thing that happened in black culture. Um, And so any kind of sexual abuse that would happen under that umbrella um, would just be kind of dismissed and not taken seriously because it was just said to be that's what they did. Um, And... I just don't really know how that relates to them not supporting people. Um, it's quite disgusting, but yeah, things like that were happening. And this is the thing when we think think about like medical racism and racism in healthcare. It isn't always that you know you won't get treated in the right way or people you know won't take you seriously. Literally in this case, they weren't even allowing people to access services that they might have needed because. They was just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, that's kind of like what you guys do, which is obviously ridiculous um, and despicable. But this group had to provide um, support for those that had gone through that um, for a variety of reasons and in a different variety of different settings and situations. Um, Sexual abuse isn't something that is, should we say, black or white, um, for want of a better phrase. Um, you know, it happens in, in different situations and there are obviously complexities to how you can deal with that depending on how that has occurred um, and in what kind of situation and the impact of that on the person. Um, and so that is what the um, Brixton Black Women's Group aim to do in kind of one of their um, points of outreach um, in regards to supporting black women better within the community. And you might feel like you've heard enough from me um, whittling on for the last 20 minutes or so. So I'm going to play you a clip from um, Gail Lewis, who was one of the members of um, this group. Um, and just listen to what she had to say um, about conscious raising um, and kind of some of the political educational work um, that the Brixton Black Women's Group were doing. This clip is um, from a British Library interview that was done quite recently, so it's in hindsight, thinking about that time where um, the Brixton Black Women's Group were working and organising. We touched on consciousness raising before and I just wanted to come back to it because there have been black feminists who have written and talked about the fact that they saw consciousness raising a luxury when they were dealing with all the things that they were dealing with as black Mm women and as working class women and I just wondered if you would characterise them as consciousness raising or something else and if it's right to use that as a phrase when talking about the discussions that you had in OWAD and Brits and Black Women's Group. No I don't think it is right to characterise them as, as consciousness raising and in fact in the Brixton group that was one of the issues that would come up because there was one of our members in particular but she wasn't alone but she used to articulate a lot Melba Wilson who constantly said yes we should be all these things we should be like this campaigning activist propagandist educational type organization 
we should be that. As well as once we got to the centre, we were also giving service information, out, you know, advice. Not exactly advice, but guidance and advocacy for local women in, in relation to welfare rights and stuff like that. So she would say we should be all those things, but she said we should also be a consciousness raising group, by which she meant we should be able to come and talk with each other just as black women, almost on the terrain of personal life, sort of reflecting a little bit inwards into the character of just daily life for us in order to, one, be a support for each other, but also to begin to do the work that CR does, I guess, which is to begin to discern the patterns in the domain of the so-called private that come to be common for black women living in South London at, at that time. So she thought we should be a CR group, and we opposed it a lot. I was one of the opposers, but I wouldn't be now. It's very interesting. Now I think absolutely trying to understand those dimensions too of black female subjectivity in a here and now, whatever the here and now was or would be, is really crucial. I really like that clip. Um, I think it's interesting to think about consciousness raising. Um, it's just not something I'd come across before, but essentially the idea of um, this is that a black woman's group, instead of doing or, you know, alongside of doing the work that I mentioned towards sexual violence and actually tangible help to help women, help single mothers um, with childcare, with, you know, getting back into, into work or, or education, that is a kind of actual, tangible, helpful, providing services, you know, immigration services, um, actually helping them access healthcare and mental health support. Um, that is in a, not in opposition, um, but in some groups it was in opposition to consciousness raising, which was more speaking about, you know, your feelings as a woman, your trauma, some of the things you've been through um, and how that kind of experience of black women, um, the patterns in it that um, Gail Lewis mentioned there and, and what that means in terms of um, being a black woman. Um, but she was kind of saying that at the time there was a little bit of a split with um not literally a, a split in the group, but um, some people were saying, you know, we need more consciousness raising, but other people were saying, well, that's a luxury we can't afford. Um, you know, there are women that are working class, and this group was primarily a working class group that needed financial support. They needed um, things immediately. There wasn't time to sit and talk about your feelings and pull up your traumas. Um it was a case of we've got to help people now with the things that they need that are, you know, lower down on the kind of hierarchy of needs like food, shelter, um, you know, a secure immigration status, for example. Um, and so it's interesting how these things are in opposition. Um, but it's also interesting because thinking about what Gail Lewis said now, which is I think this interview was like in the 2010s. Um, and so this is in hindsight and she kind of looks back and thinks well actually maybe we not we needed more but I wouldn't be opposed to it now um in that situation um to having kind of more consciousness raising and, and to thinking about um the experience of black women and the patterns in that experience and and then going from there to to think about what can be done next um so yeah it just kind of highlights a different element of of black women's groups organizing and what what they would have been debating and thinking about and doing
And the final kind of quote I have um, is anonymous. It's taken from The Heart of the Race, um, the book I mentioned that came out of OAD, but obviously the Bricks and Black Women's group also came out of OAD. Some of the members went on to join that group and then, you know, wrote this um, book, this collection of black women's stories and testimonies of their experiences so far in Britain. Um, And they're anonymous because in the book they're anonymous, so this was taken from the book. Um, And I'll just read it because it talks about the formation of the group and some of the other work that they did that I might not have already mentioned. And so I quote, We formed the Black Women's Group in 1973. We came mainly out of black organisations. Some had left and some were still there. But on the whole, the organisations we came from were in the process of disintegrating. Straight away, we got accused of splitting the movement, of weakening organisations which were already on the way out. But for most of us, setting up an autonomous group for black women was really necessary at that time. There were issues that related to us as black women, like women's work, our economic dependence on men and childcare. It was a chance to put them at the top of the agenda for a change. We didn't want to become part of the white women's movement. We felt they had different priorities for us. We had to set up and maintain the first black bookshop in Brixton, and joined the Railton 4 campaign over police harassment. We also mobilised the community in Brixton against the practice of setting up disruptive units and helped in the campaign for parental rights. As the first autonomous black women's group of its kind, certainly in London, there were no models for us to follow. We just had to work it out as we went along. We were very wary of the charges that we might be splitting the black struggle or mobilising in a vacuum or imitating white women. These were the kinds of criticisms black men were making at the time. We couldn't be anti-men, but it felt good to be in a group which wasn't hostile and didn't fight all the time. We would not have called ourselves feminist by any means. We didn't go that far for many years. It took us a very long time before we worked out a black women's perspective, which took account of race, class, sex and sexuality. So again, another very interesting um, quote taken, um, thinking about splitting the movement, splitting the black struggle um, by way of um, organising as black women as opposed to under black men. Um, Very interesting. Um, They were said to be anti-men. So not only are black women, you know, dealing with the racism of the state, of police, of white women, of white men, they now are also being accused of like splitting up the movement from black men, which we know um, it came up in our the podcast about OAD. Um, and it's a common it's common rhetoric, actually, from black men um, when black women organise um, as a collective, that we should be focusing on the struggles of all first, of all black people. But that tends to just mean black men um, in a lot of um, circumstances. And so it's interesting that, you know, even then they felt they needed to to break off and, and work kind of alone. Um, and, you know, as I said, a lot of the groups that they had previously been in were kind of disintegrating and, and falling apart a little bit. Um, so they were actually, you know, in some ways strengthening movements to support black people more widely by continuing on on their own because they weren't being utilised properly in, in groups for kind of black liberation more widely. Um, Interesting enough as well, comments were made about, um, you know, not calling themselves feminist. Feminism is a movement that started with white women um, and 
it well, is and was quite exclusionary. Um, it's only till the 80s where you have Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality. Um, and Kimberly Crenshaw is an American woman. Um, and that kind of obviously trickles down into, into Britain and into the feminist consciousness here. But a lot of black women then would not have called themselves feminists at all because, as I said, they kind of didn't want to align their movement with white women and the things that they were fighting for because they were not obviously fighting against racism, imperialism and some of the things that were impacting black women. Um, and also this idea that they took a long time to figure out a black women's perspective. This is the idea of consciousness raising and them having to kind of understand who they were and what experiences kind of link them together and their kind of collective identity in a way, um, which, as I said, took account of race, class, sex and sexuality. Um, and, you know, I've mentioned race, obviously, we're talking about black women and class. Um, this was a socialist group and was mainly um, kind of populated by working class people. But sex and sexuality, we've not gone into too much apart from obviously sexual violence, but sexuality was a huge um, issue as well. Um, not as in a problem, but it was something that was a topic of conversation um, because there were women that would have been lesbian or bisexual that also didn't have a place in any of these movements. Um, I think at that point it would have still been illegal to be gay um, in Britain. Um, and, you know, the way women navigate um, being queer and being, you know, part of that community at that time is a lot different to it would have been now. Um, and so there were a lot of things that black women were trying to navigate at this time and in these spaces and they felt the need to do that outside of black men outside of white women um and this is why these movements were born um and they were so successful in what they did in terms of tangible help and also um creating a like political consciousness uh, for black women in britain at that time and that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and had a lovely think about black women um, and some of the issues um, in regards to the 60s and 70s um, and them trying to carve out a space for themselves in British society. Next week, I hope to be thinking a little bit about Olive Morris um, and some of the work she did within this group, but also outside of it. Um, and her as a figure and as a person in black British history um, whose name we didn't often hear and more recently have heard a little bit more um, as her story has been uncovered um, from the archives so tune in next week and have a great international women's month thank you for listening goodbye Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.